if the L1 can handle all the transactions, why would you have an L2? That doesn't really make sense to me. Like you're just introducing pain for no gain. Monet also wants to do some innovations and some extensions on chain um, that really opens up and allows you to build new new sorts of applications and that's that sort of thing. But for us, for V0, it's just pure performance. It doesn't mean that performance is Monad's only, you know, targeted innovation. Um, it's just kind of like, if you don't have the performance, you can't really, everything else is kind of a non-starter, right? Like if you can't support a large number of users of the chain, then why, why innovate in other areas? It doesn't even make sense. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Zero X Research. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Hexens, one of the most hardcore security teams in Web3, pioneering in ZK and novel cryptography. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including their work on their new ZK EVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, Nubank, and more. You'll hear about them a little bit later in the show. But today is t September 28th, and we have an awesome interview lined up with James Huntsaker, the co-founder of Monad. James, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. So I want to start the conversation just uh, around, I guess, there's been a lot of effort in scaling the EVM, whether it be alt -roll L1s, roll-ups, sidechains, etc. Uh, how is Monad different than these other solutions? You know, I think like the early um, forks of Ethereum, um, a lot of them were um, minor sort of tweaks on the consensus, um, like Avalanche had, um, you know, like a different consensus mechanism. Um, the execution side was usually just a copy of um, Geth, the Go Ethereum client that was imported. Um, so there wasn't much uh, effort put there. And then, you know, there have been many different iterations of Ethereum clients in different languages, but um, they are all just basically uh, re-implementations of the same design. So I think what where Monad defers is actually, you know, we're building something that's um, fundamentally different in design than than the previous iterations. Um, on the as far as like rollups and stuff, you know, there's a bunch of trade-offs that made with rollups, um, and there's still a lot of work to do there. Uh, right now, most rollups are centralized; uh, they're not decentralized, right? They have a single sequencer. Um, <clears throat> there's issues with um, composability with rollups. You want to, yeah, apps running on one rollup and you want to use something, compose it with something that's running on a different rollup. That's really hard to do. So, you know, I think rollups are a fine uh, technology, but there's still a lot of unsolved problems there that I think it's probably years of research and, and effort that needs to, to really make it like a, a good user experience and properly decentralized. Do you mind diving into some of like the primary differences between, you know, the EVM in terms of like Ethereum's design versus your guys' optimized version of it? Obviously, what we're trying to do is is utilize the full power of the machine. Um, not, you know, we're targeting lower in their lower end machines as well, but we want to like use all the cores on the machine. We want to use the utilize the um, performance of uh, you know, the latest SSD drives. Um, I think, um, you know, I think a recent number is like $200 to buy a really nice like NVMe SSD drive. So, um, and those things really, like the performance is really great. Um, few, a few hundred thousand um, operations per second. Uh, the bandwidth is huge, you know, gigabytes of, of data can be transferred to those per second. Even as a consumer, you have access to this like really powerful hardware. And the existing 
like go Ethereum, it's single threaded. Like it's a, it's um, I'm I'm talking talking about the execution side of single threaded. You know, there's obviously other things going on like the RPC and that that sort of stuff. But um, you know, it's not it just not utilizing like the power of the hardware, um, and that's what that's what Mana is really focused on doing. Our specialty um, from trading was to to build like really super optimal um, software that really like utilizes the full power of the hardware. And so that's kind of like, we're just taking that, you know, we've been doing that for a long time. So just taking that important, porting that knowledge into the blockchain space by trying to build mana and just, just extract as much power as we can out of the, out of the CPU and the memory and the, the SSD drives and that sort of stuff. And, and just really speed it up. Right. So I think this kind of gets to the, the idea of parallel execution, really. And the idea is they're just using multiple cores that the computer has, even like very, very basic consumer laptops have multiple cores. So they can do multiple things at the same time. Uh, and the EVM is very sequential. So can you talk a bit about uh, what parallel ex execution means in the context of a blockchain and, and why that's pretty important to scalability? Yeah, so... Um... You know, a block is a linearly ordered set of transactions, right? Like transaction one, transaction two, transaction three. And each transaction is basically mapping the previous state to a new state. And then, you know, once you string all these transactions together, at the end of a block, you have a whole new state um, that was, you know, that's all these transactions applied to the previous state. Um, most, many transactions don't actually interact with each other like the, the block, the, the, the blockchain state is a bunch of different accounts. Like, you know, maybe you're transferring money to Sam. I'm transferring money to somebody else. Those, those things don't have anything to do with each other. Um, so even though that they're linearly ordered, uh, the order doesn't matter, right? Like whether your transaction was before mine in the block or mine was before yours has a, is of no consequence um, to the out, actual outcome. And so... Um, you know, in, in like mathematical terms, you know, there's, there's things called like partial order, total order. Like the, the transactions are really partially ordered. They're not really totally ordered, but we totally order them just because that's what people are used to. They, that's what they put in the block is a linearly ordered set of transactions. So, you know, optimistic execution or parallel execution is trying to basically untangle that, like go back from a total order to a partial order. Um, on these transactions and that's a partial order is really like a graph and then you, you're trying to execute that graph um, and and arrive at the same result um, mana's design is basically at its fundamental base it's just very naive optimistic execution like i run my transaction i run your transaction and we say we check and we say okay do these two transactions conflict if they conflict then we then we know that oh we made a mistake because um, you know, you, let's say you were transferring money to me and then I was transferring money to somebody else and I didn't have enough balance for the second transfer, but I did it with your transfer included. And obviously the ordering matters, you know, it's like, it's like the bank at the end of the day, you know, your paycheck has to come in and then your mortgage payment goes out sort of thing. And if your paycheck wasn't in there. If something happened, your mortgage payment would bounce. So it's that's, you know, those sorts of situations where, um, the ordering matters. Of course, there's other situations where the ordering doesn't matter. You know, you go to you go to a restaurant for dinner um, and you pay, um, you know, your utility bill. Like the, the order that the bank puts those on your um, bank statement doesn't matter. Like the result is the same, assuming you had enough money for both. Um, so, um, you know, Monad is trying to 
optimistic execution is just trying to try different things. It's basically the optimistic part is like you're naive, you're dumb and you try different things and then you check, oh, did what I try actually work? And if it worked, well, that's great. We got to speed up because we executed these two transactions in parallel. Um, if it didn't work, then we got to go back and like fix up, fix up what we did. Right. So we have to maybe have to rerun a transaction that, that we detected that um, the order actually did matter. I want to give a quick shout out to Hexens. As we explore today's blockchain landscape, let's take a moment to recognize them as a premier cybersecurity provider in Web3. Hexens is trusted by tier one projects like Polygon, including a security review on their new Polygon ZKEVM, Mantle, Risk Zero, Lido, One Inch, Nubank, and more. Get a deep dive into your technology stack with the most comprehensive analysis and cybersecurity consulting. Hexens not only uses widely known methodologies and flows, but discovers and introduces new ones on a day-to-day -day basis. With over $55 billion secured, they cover everything from smart contracts to blockchain to Web2 pen tests. Yeah, there's been nearly $7 billion of total value hacked in crypto's nascent history, so it's safe to say your team has a lot on the line. Don't skimp out, take your security seriously, and reach out to Hexens. Don't forget to mention 0x Research for a free Web2 pen test with your partnership, and reach out to Hexens at hexens.io. Find them in the links in the show notes, or reach out to them at Permissionless. They'll be at booth 832. Uh, but without further ado, let's get back to today's episode. And so on the optimistic execution side, is that build slightly different than the way like Solana does parallel execution or is it kind of the same concept? Um, Solana has access lists. So Solana knows ahead of time um, what transactions will conflict. So Ethereum has this, um, but nobody uses it. I don't think didn't use it for a while. I'm not, I'm not sure the current state, but Ethereum access lists are not required. Um, there was some, you would get some discount to, um, in theory, you would get some discount to specify, I'm going to load, I'm going to access this account. And you pay a little bit more upfront because you're putting this access list in the transaction, the transaction's bigger, but hopefully the discount that you got, um, you know, on the other side would outweigh that. And, and you would, you would basically get rewarded. You would get a discount for specifying this, but, um, with Solana, that's required. With Ethereum, it's not required. So we don't have the information um, that Solana has when it executes a block. Right. Okay. So that's why you kind of have to assume like, all right, let's try to execute these in parallel. And if it works, it works. That's great. We, we improved. But in the case it doesn't work, do you end up with a, a slower result or you, is the worst case scenario just doing them sequentially anyways? Yeah. I mean, the worst case scenario is doing it sequentially and that could happen that could happen even on Solana, right? If, if every, if you had a block on a Solana block full of transactions that all access the exact same state, then, then Solana wouldn't be able to execute them in parallel either. Um, so yeah, the worst case for any parallel system is that all the transactions are dependent upon each other and you, and you, you have no choice, but to execute them sequentially. So an optimistic, um, execution, the worst case, it would be the sequential time you may execute transactions, but, you you have to throw away the result you haven't wasted you haven't wasted time you've wasted electricity right you've you've, you've spent a lot of time computing things to get discarded but it's not like it's not like you did that in lieu of doing productive work you always are um, the transactions are always considered sequentially and merged sequentially and so um, when you when you re-execute the transaction the second time it's guaranteed to succeed guaranteed to succeed because at that point for you to check that there's a conflict you already have executed all the previous transactions in the block up to that point 
And so if you go to execute again, it's definitely going to succeed. And so, so you, you can just think of like, you know, one core is always doing sequentially and then all the other cores are like trying to do stuff optimistically. Mm, okay. Okay. And that, that makes a ton of sense. And I think you gave some great example, like real world examples of when uh, sequence matters and just bring that back to blockchain, like, you know, buying an NFT on OpenSea doesn't touch the same state as say trading, making a trade through Uniswap. Um, and I'm just curious, like, has anyone done any good research around like, let's say you could have paralyzed the EVM from day one and Ethereum was was had this ability. Like, what percentage of blocks or transactions within blocks could actually be done in parallel? Because, you know, if we look at what's happening on chain today, it's mostly just trades through Uniswap. And a lot of the time, it's like everybody's just trading the same exact meme coin. So, like, I'm curious, like, how, like, what is the total level of optimization that could really exist given the fact that there's, like, not that many things going on on chain and a lot of state overlap? Yeah, so um, I don't have any numbers for you right now. Uh, we've we've looked at this. Obviously, it varies over time. If you replay early Ethereum history without even parallel um, execution, you can do like 50,000 transactions a second, right? Because wow. it's all transfers. Um, so, you know, I think people like to quote number of transactions per second a lot on, on marketing and stuff. But they'll, quote, they'll usually be quoting like transfers or something like this. So, yeah, you know, even a single threaded... Um, very early Ethereum history, you can execute 50k transactions per second, but they're all just basic transfers. Like people at that at that time, people were just transferring ETH around to each other. Um, there was no really like smart contract usage. And then obviously with time, you know, over the years, there were more and more smart contracts. People started doing more more on chain sort of activity, um, and you know the 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 dynamic the the make the makeup of the transactions changed with, with as the years went on. And so um, I don't have an overall number for you, like what today, um, but, you know, we do one of our main testing um, methods that we use is we replay Ethereum history. So we just start at the beginning and just replay it and just see how fast can we replay it. No, that, that makes that makes sense. And I have one more question on the uh, parallel execution front, because one thing that just gets a little hairy for me is like the definition of touching the same state. So. Like it, it's very, you know, it makes sense why trades are, need to be sequential through a Uniswap pool. But what if like, you know, there were two Uniswap pools that both used, you know, USDC as the quote asset and two random coins on either end that were different. Like, does the fact that they both touched the USDC contract make them touching the same state or is it is it different than that? Uh, so t just touching the same contract is not enough to say you're touching the same state. You actually have to be touching the same storage. Okay. So your balance in like an ERC twenty is basically an entry in a dictionary, you know, that says Dan has this much, right? James has this much. And so if you're doing a transfer um, or interacting with another smart contract, uh, it you know, those are different those are different state, even though they're the same account. So yeah, I think that's I think that's one popular misconception is that we can't paralyze within accounts. We can certainly paralyze uh, transactions within the same account. I'm curious about like, uh, I guess the ordering of transactions as they're executed in a parallel fashion. So it sounds like based on your docs, which by the way, you guys released the other day and we can link to in the show notes, but you guys are going to do a priority gas auction and have the consensus, uh, client by default, um, or, or sorry, the client by default of, of Monad, basically order based on, you know, that gas auction, whoever paid the most, the least, is that, 
is that like standard or, you know, how does this differ from like Solana's localized fee markets? I just want a little bit more color on that. Yeah. So um, I think it's standard behavior, right? That you, the people who are willing to pay more for um, a transaction should get their transaction done first. Right. It's a, it's a market. Um, the, uh, yeah, I, I think the localized fee market thing is, um, interesting for sure. Um, but there's, there's kind of a flip side to this. Um, you know, so just to step back for a second, the most expensive parts of executing a blockchain, like executing transactions is, um, cryptographic functions like hashes. Those are very expensive. Elliptical curve, um, functions are very expensive. Um, I think like a signature recovery is 70 microseconds. You know, that's a long, that's actually a long time, right? That's 70,000 nanoseconds. And, you know, on a, on a decently fast CPU, that's a lot of, that's a lot of work, right? So, um, and, and then the other part of what makes a blockchain slow is state access. Reading from disk is very slow. Disk turnaround can be, you know, hundreds, hundreds of, uh, like a median latency from a disk read can be like hundreds of, of microseconds. So those are very expensive relative to the other sort of computation. What's going on was just like, okay, I want to add a balance or I want to like transfer this NFT to somebody else. Like those, that's, that's extremely cheap computation, right? Compared to the cryptography functions and the state access. So, um, I think, you know, on, on the one hand for parallel execution, you may say, okay, we want to incentivize people to not access the same state but it's probably actually the opposite, right? We want to incentivize to an extent people to access the same state because the same state is the same disk and disk reads are very expensive. So, um, you know, we don't, we don't have all this, um, this fee sort of stuff figured out completely yet. Like we're still, we're still, you know, thinking about these things, but um, if, if you're, if you're going to access something that I'm going to access, like we're both going to trade on the same Uniswap pool or something, we probably actually want to make that, to an extent cheaper than if you and I traded on different Uniswap pools, because those are two different, two different reads um, from the disc. And that's just more work. That's just more latency that gets added in. So obviously if you do too much of that, if everybody does the same exact state, then you can't parallelize anything, but it's definitely a trade-off between, um, um, you know, the, the performance of, of parallelizing across CPUs, but also, uh, the caching sort of behavior that actually happens on the node, right? And we want to we want to to an extent incentivize people to use the same state. Right. Okay, that makes a ton of sense here. And I, I want to talk a bit about Monad BFT and and this uh, new con consensus mechanism you're bringing. So, uh, what are like the I guess the core offerings? I believe I saw one second block times, including single slot finality. Uh, so, how are you guys achieving that? What's the uh, what's the core thesis behind that? Yeah, so you know, we we started with hot stuff. Um, um, hot stuff is just pipeline sort of um, consensus algorithm, right? Where uh, you know normally you would go through these rounds, and each leader would lead each round, and then would lead multiple rounds, and a uh, voting, and then the thing would be approved, and you would be done, and that that block would be you know done, and then so the hot stuff and these other sort of innovations where they introduce pipelining, basically where you know, one leader proposes at the same time, he's also, you know, handling the voting for a previous proposal. And so, um, you know, we, we start with hot stuff. We incorporated, you know, DMBFT innovations. Um, 
uh, Jolteon. There's just there's a lot of papers out there with different innovations, um, innovations, and so you know we're just using the latest of all that, um, all those innovations. Uh, our our distribution mechanism, you know, we're we're heavily optimizing the the gossip layer, the P2P, the net, the mempool, um, looking in the broadcast, you know, trees for um, the proposals. So you know, it's just it's just basically taking the best of, of what the latest sort of research is out there and, and assembling it into something that's, you know, very performant. Um, innovation wise, uh, on our side, you know, we have a couple of things where maybe we do some sort of like probabilistic sort of assembly, which is, um, results in less data transmission. Obviously the, the less data you have to transmit, the more efficient it's going to be. So, um, you know, there's compression, there's sort of optimist, sort of like probabilistic sort of compression that can happen. Um, so, you know, we're, we're working on all that stuff, but, um, yeah, it's just the latest of, 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 uh, BFT research. Okay. Thanks. And I also saw on the doc, so we already talked about parallel execution, but I also saw deferred execution in there. And you guys define that as pipelining between consensus and execution to significantly increase the execution budget that might've been already touched on when I asked you about kind of like the gas fee market, but do you mind elaborating here just so it's a little bit more clear for, for honestly myself? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, in, in blockchain so far, um, the leader would execute all the transactions that are going to put in a block and they would arrive at a new Merkle route for that, which is the basically how you cryptographically prove what the state is, right? It's a Merkle tree. And they would arrive at a new Merkle route and they would include that in the proposal. And then the, um, the voters, they would receive the proposal, they would execute the transactions that are in the proposal they would calculate their Merkle root and they would check that against um, what the leader computed. And, and if it matches, they would vote yes. And if it didn't match, they would vote no. Right. So um, again, it's not, that's a sequential sort of sequence of events that's happening. And what we're proposing is that we run these things in parallel. So um, the leader doesn't need to include the new Merkle root. That doesn't mean, um, I think some people will infer that that means that the leader didn't execute at the same time it was creating the block, it probably did, right? Especially with MEV sort of opportunities or that sort of thing. You know, the leader probably did execute the transactions and knows the ordering. Um, and, but it, it's not including that. So it's the, the, you know, the the overlap buys you more time to basically pipeline execution and consensus. And so you can use more cores on the machine. So while you're, while you're doing consensus for the next round, you can be executing the previous round. The, pre the previous proposal. And then at some point, um, which is TBD, you know, in terms of like timing, um, they will include that, that Merkle root in uh, on chain. And then they, people can agree on that or whether it's, whether it's correct or not, but um, execution should be deterministic, right? Like it, it, there's, there's no probabilistic sort of behavior happening on, on chain, everything, you know, you should be able to look at a, a, a set of transactions and a, and a state and calculate what the new state is. And we should always come to the same agreement on that. If if, if we don't, then there's probably a, a coding error somewhere. Somebody made a mistake. So um, execution should be deterministic. So it shouldn't it shouldn't be the case that you ever really disagree on what the result of executing a set of transactions is. Um, so because the proposal doesn't include this, it doesn't it doesn't preclude you from calculating like as fast as you want. You know, if you have a really high end machine, you're a trading firm like an HFT trading firm and you want to know, 
what the latest state is from the proposal, of course, you can calculate it as fast as you want. Um, if you're if you're doing MEV, of course, you want to use a big, powerful machine and and throw a ton of hardware at it. And you can calculate all the different possibilities for how you can make money off that block. So you know, it doesn't it doesn't stop anybody from executing as fast as they want. But it just means that we're not really um, coming to consensus on the the new state route for a, just a short window of time. Um, it also sort of allows bursty behavior. You know, you might you might create a block that takes more than a second to execute, right? Um, or you may create, you know, and then at some point they have to they have to catch up. But you know, they can't run the execution can't um, you know trail consensus and just keep building up. You know, we're like okay, now now we're an hour behind. It's not like that. So there's some mechanisms in play to to stop that. But um, yeah, it 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 doesn't. It's a, it just gives you more budget and allows you to do things in parallel. Awesome. I appreciate you kind of tying a bow on that concept for me. It's definitely like a hard thing to grasp. So <laughs> I appreciate you explaining it to me like I'm five. But uh, how does a Monad BD fit into this? Um, I was curious, how is it different than, you know, the the popular clients on Ethereum? Uh, do you mean Monad DB? Yeah, sorry do? about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, they... Um, there's two main generic sort of key value stores that most clients use. Um, some use uh, B-Tree databases. Um, the most popular B-Tree database is called LMDB. Um, I think it's Lightning. Well, it's Lightning something, Lightning Memory Map Database or something like that. Um, very popular data uh, key value store. I, I'll say database and key value store interchangeably. They're not. We're not talking about SQL databases. We're talking about key value stores. Um, so uh, some use that. Uh, Aragon uses MDBX, which is a fork of LMDB. Um, and then some use uh, LSM databases, uh, um, key value stores like LevelDB or RocksDB. So these are, these databases have their own structure. B-Tree is a computer science data structure. LSM log structure merge tree is a computer science data structure. And um, that's, you know, that's how they implement it on disk. Um, there's a number of other issues with implementation, like they're not fully asynchronous. They don't leverage the latest Linux kernel innovations, that sort of thing. But that's kind of a separate thing. Um, and then in Ethereum, we have uh, Patricia Merkle trees. So Patricia Merkle tree is just a, a, a data structure of its own that you can cryptographically verify and prove things. And so what the situation we end up in is we're trying to take this one data structure and, and shoehorn it into another data structure. And that becomes very inefficient. Um, and so the usage of, I think, I think Geth uses level DB, you know, the way that they navigate um, the Patricia Merkle tree, is just a lot of disk access, a lot of lookups, a lot of work that's, that's happening there. And it's, it's just very inefficient. And it's um, frankly, just a waste of the power of, like I said earlier, SSD drives are really powerful these days. You know, you can get a really cheap SSD drive that has a lot of, you know, hardware capability and and that that capability is all lost. That power is all lost with these these other these other databases and, and that design. So knowing that we kind of okay, we're gonna, we engage and okay, we have to build our own database. Um, we did tons of benchmarking, you know, even over months and investigation and running all sorts of simulations and um, you know, just this was a this was a huge effort, actually. Um, I, I know in like a lot of the docs, it's like one line. OK, MonoDB. 
but it, it's actually a, a huge undertaking, right? It's, there's not very many databases in the world and it's, it's really hard to build it. And there's probably like a couple hundred people in the world that work on like key value stores, right? Like RoxyB, I think is maintained, you know, there's Facebook has one Google, Google created LevelDB, Facebook, I think made RoxyB. Apologies if I'm messing this up, but um, you know, these are big companies. Um, it's, it's just a really huge undertaking to kind of create this sort of thing. But, you know, we felt that we had to, because that's the only way um, there's a, um, that we're going to get the performance that we need. So, uh, and then on the back side of that, like I said, once you start that undertaking, then you got to make sure that you're using the latest Linux kernel technologies, make sure you're fully leveraging the power of the SSD. So that's where asynchronous IO comes in on Linux. That's called IO ring. Um, so there's a lot of kernel stuff, low level sort of kernel and, and hardware sort of stuff that goes into this um, thinking to really like speed it up. But um, yeah, it's it's a big part of monad execution is the database. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, like the two major expenses of execution are, you know, cryptographic functions and, and disk access. So this is this is half of that, basically. OK, so. It does sound like a lot of this as a whole is a really a, a huge undertaking is taking the EVM and, and building off of it uh, and, and really focusing on efficiency and like basically taking some of the leading ideas and, and innovating on those and then putting them all in not only at the execution layer, but also with consensus as well. Um, so I'm curious to kind of get your take for more, I guess, more of like a, a business sense in some ways is wh what was the idea around doing this and like building your own separate L1 as opposed to doing something that say like Eclipse is doing where they just took the SVM and sat it on top of Ethereum as an L2. Um, so that way they still had this really improved execution environment over to the traditional EVM. So like, what, what was the, like, did that ever cross your mind of like, Hey, let's just focus on the EV, uh, just the execution environment for now and maybe we address the consensus later and launches an l2 is that ever like a part of the discussion well you know if if you're going to have a lot of transactions there's going to be a lot of data like there's a lot of data and a lot of transactions and so um we did look at uh you know we we did look at data availabilities uh solutions um uh just we just are going to generate too much data. Like we're targeting right now, a hundred megabit per second um, connection. That's, you know, block could be, you know, eight megabytes or something and per second, you're going to generate eight megabytes of data per second. That's a huge amount of data that compared to what these data availability solutions are supporting right now. Um, I, I think I agree with um, Anatoly, you know, he says, okay, if, if there ever is a solution that it's great, then Solana will convert to an L2, you know, like, um, if yeah if we're not you know we're not opposed to that it's just like there's nothing available that can support what we want to do and if there ever was then yeah we would consider it but um you know we we did look at slussy we did look at other sort of um well i mean ethereum is kind of a non-star because ethereum is really slow right like ethereum block times are slow and and the, the amount of data that you can post on ethereum is very very slow and it's also going to be expensive you know i on some of these busy weekends, I've gone and traded on Optimism or Arbitrum, you know, on on, on some of the exchanges on the L2s and the fees, the fees skyrocket on the L2s as well um, because of the economics, right? It's tied to, so the fees skyrocket on Ethereum, they skyrocket on the L2. And so that's also something we, we kind of wanted to avoid. But yeah, if there ever is an opportunity for, if there's a great solution out there that can, that can handle a lot of data, um, we'd definitely be 
be open to that, but it just doesn't exist right now. And so just to put that number, um, like eight megabits per sec per second, eight megabytes, megabytes per second, yeah. uh, into perspective, like what is a Solana roughly generate, uh, per second, if you know, off the top of your head, I, I don't know. Question. Off, yeah. Yeah. I don't know off the top of my head, um, what they're, what they're putting through. I mean, Solana, Solana right now is uh, underutilized. Um, you know, the, the average number of transactions per second at any given moment is still pretty significantly under what it's capable of. So um, it's been a while since I've kind of seen like a spike in, you know, Solana's sort of activity. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know the theoretical number of what Solana can do. But I, I have seen it practice. Yeah. It's, it can do a decent number of transactions as well. Do you foresee state bloat like becoming a problem? Because as you mentioned, this is going to be a very data intensive chain. So like how... How are you guys going to circumvent that? And, you know, do you expect node requirements to increase over time? Um, yeah, state bloat is state bloat obviously is a big thing. Um, I think MonadDB addresses some of that to an extent. Like we can handle a much larger state, local state. Um, there's honestly the most worrying thing is like synchronization. So, you know, you bring up a new node, you want to sync. Um, just like Solana, you can't replay from the beginning of 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 history of Monad because you just, there's just no way you could catch up, right? You would need a supercomputer or something. Um, so you, you have to sync to some sort of state from another node. And if that state is hundreds of gigabytes, that's a, that's a heck of a lot of data to download. And, and, and in the meantime, the chain is running in the background is continuing to generate new state. So um, yeah, it's state growth is definitely an issue. Um, I'm not worried about it from, right now from a node requirement perspective or like how much is on disk, I'm more worried about algorithmically, like how do we sync state across nodes and how do we, how do we deal with this large object, you know, over the network, less worried about it on the, on the actual SSD drive. Um, there are some, I, I think even Ethereum has put out some proposals on, on dealing with state growth. Um, I personally would like to see, you know, archiving, happen as sort of a, a solution where kind of like just state is deterministically pruned from the tree, but it can be restored later. So, you know, I, I have a big contract or something and I haven't touched it in a while. We just kind of purge it out of the tree, but it's not lost. You can still, um, you can initiate a transaction that restores the state and then you would prove that that's, that's a valid state. And so that's kind of like an archiving solution. I would like to see that first before we, um, you know, maybe go to storage rent or that sort of thing where, you know, you're kind of forcing people. It just seems like less intrusive to um, keep stuff around, but keep it archived as, a, as opposed to like actually deleting it. Um, you know, that's not, that's just not a good user experience. You know, you, lo you haven't logged into Google photos for a year and all your photos are gone. Like that's not a good it's not a good experience for the user. So, um, you know, but if Google said, okay, well, you haven't logged into Google for a while, we're going to archive your photos. And if you want them back, you have to pay a, you know, a little fee and we're going to go out to the warehouse and get the tape drive and bring it back in and restore your photos. That, and that seems more reasonable to me. So, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting problem and a lot of people have proposals and yeah, we'll, we'll be looking at that, but for, for for version zero of Monad, it's not really, I'm not, not a concern right now. Is there any uh, compatibility with like existing EVM contracts today? Like, can I just pick up a contract I deployed on ETH mainnet and then bring it over to Monad and, or would I have any issues doing that? 
No issues, no. So we, we replay our, our whole test. Like I mentioned, our testing is um, replaying Ethereum history. Right. So everything is currently active on Ethereum should run on Monad. And um, we also run the Ethereum test suites and all that sort of stuff on Monad code as well. So yeah, it, okay. should, be, it should be identical. And was that like some of the core reasoning behind using the EVM and optimizing it as opposed to taking just a blank slate and kind of building your own execution environment? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did look at Wasm early on, but you know, there is so Wasm is somewhat source compatible. Like you can compile um, Solidity to Wasm, um, but you know, we just felt that like um, I think honestly, I think people make too much of a big deal about the VMs of these things. Like they're all pretty standard. Like I remember doing Java VM back in the day. You know, so it's like they're all pretty very similar. Um, there may be some slight architectural things that are different underneath, but um, EVM is kind of weird. Like it has 32 byte word sizes and this sort of stuff. But besides a little bit of these like weird things, it's it's just a standard stack based VM. And there've been a lot of VMs in history and there's nothing, there's nothing fancy or different about it besides, you know, these kind of little quirky sort of things. So um, there's no really good reason to run away from, the Ethereum VM, it's a, it's a fine VM. Um, so going that route, yeah, then we, then we're fully bytecode compatible. You know, how would I replay Ethereum history? If I, if I did a Wasm VM, I wouldn't be able to, you know, so there's, it, it's, yeah, it, it just made sense to just stick with what's there. It works. It's, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, yeah. So, as a question from a guy with zero coding knowledge, for the most part, I'm in like elementary school for SQL and Python. So I saw that the Monad client is written in uh, Rust and C++. Like why, first of all? And then second of all, and again, this is coming from a not super technical guy, but is there any challenges with getting a bytecode compatible EVM uh, execution environment when you have your client written in these other languages? Um, so, so first as to the why, like, um, you know, if you want performance, if you work at a high frequency trading firm, you're going to write your software in C++. Like that's just, that's just the way it is. C or C++, right? There's no other language. Um, well now, now Rust is coming along, but people, in my experience, people don't use Rust in finance, at least not yet. So, um, you know, there's no other, there's no other language that's going to give you that level of performance, not go, you know, go has, um, garbage collection, memory, memory allocation. It's just not as fast. It's, it's, it's quirky language as well. Um, obviously Python and these sorts of things are not, are non-starters. They're, they're not fast languages. So, um, yeah, it's just, you know, what's available, like what's, what's, what are fast languages? It's basically C, C++ and now, now Rust has come along, but, um, and then that's, and frankly, that's just like our expertise. You know, if there was another fast language that we didn't know, then, you know, that'd, that'd be a different thing, but it's like, that's our expertise. We've been writing C++ code for a long time. Um, the team knows it very well. So um, it just doesn't make sense to try to, to use a different language. Um, in terms of related to the EVM, no, I mean, there's been C++, there are C++ implementations of the EVM um, on, under the Aragon uh, architecture. You know, Aragon's in, in Go, but there was, um, there is Silkworm, which is written in C++. There is um, um, that's still actively maintained and developed. There is uh, there was a Rust um, thing. If, you know, I think Paradigm has that 
um, a Ref client that's in Rust. Um, and then, yeah, historically there were, there have been other C++ implementations. So yeah, the, the implementation language just doesn't have, um, any bearing on, um, how, you know, what's implementing the Ethereum VM. That's a totally separate thing. Okay. Thanks. That's super helpful. And then just doubling down on Dan's question, like, okay, like if I have Uniswap deployed on the, you know, Ethereum, is it really easy to just copy paste, go onto Monad? Um, is there any scenario in which that is not the case? Because I've seen a lot of, you know, uh, ZKVMs, different L2s claim Ethereum compatibility, but it's really not quite as out of the box as they kind of advertise it to be. Um, I'm not aware of any compatibility differences. Like I said, we, we literally replay Ethereum history to see how fast we can execute. So, you know, if somebody had deployed something on Ethereum that wasn't compatible with Monad, you know, that would fail. That that exercise would fail, right? So um, maybe somebody has a smart contract somewhere that's not deployed on Ethereum and hasn't been used. It's not, I don't, I mean, I don't know yet, but it's as far as we know, we're 100% compatible. And then on like a percentage basis, when you replay that history, how much faster are you? Um. Yeah, like I said, it varies by it varies by his, by history. So early on, like I said, you can do fifty thousand transactions per second on a single core. Monad's probably not making no not making much of a difference there, right? Um, um, but yeah, I don't have I don't have the latest numbers. I mean, it, it, it's it's also kind of funky because Ethereum blocks are small, right? So we're really targeting ten thousand transactions per second, or maybe even more, and we're that's one block. Right. So our, our block time is one second. So our blocks will be about 10,000 transactions or more. And um, Ethereum blocks are 200 transactions or something, 250. I can't remember. Not so bad. it's it's not really a totally. And, you know, you're trying to calculate the Merkle root after the state. Right. So like after each block, you have to calculate the new Merkle root. And so when you're replaying Ethereum, like you're calculating the new Merkle root after 250 transactions, whereas, you know, for monads anticipated usage you would be calculating a new Merkle root after ten thousand transactions so there's there's some things that are kind of like not fully aligned in, in terms of making like a fair um performance comparison but um yeah we'll do more work on that eventually at some point we'll, we'll publish some numbers we'll just say okay we we replay like like i said the historical stuff's not that interesting so you know we'll, we'll publish some numbers we'll say we replayed ethereum from block 15 million to 16 million it took this long that sort of thing um I know a popular metric that people like to post on Twitter and stuff is like sync time or that sort of thing. But that's, again, that's, that's syncing from the beginning of Ethereum, um, different transaction makeup. Those numbers aren't really fair comparisons. And, um, even the Aragon architecture, it doesn't compute. Um, it, it uses a staged what they call stage sync, and it doesn't compute the Merkle root until the very end or after, after you've executed X number of blocks. So it's not really, these numbers that people use um, throw around, I'm sure you guys are aware of this, right? Like marketing, crypto marketing numbers are kind of, you know, baloney half the time. What? No way. <laughs> so, yeah. So, the you know, these these kind of things don't make sense. So, you, you, at some point, we need to produce like a rigorous, like open source comparison. And it needs to be on recent data on Ethereum. And, you know, how fast can each client sort of replay these numbers? And then, and then we'll it'll just be open and it, it kind of like untamperable sort of like source of truth on performance. But um, yeah, I don't, don't have the numbers for you right now. Is the bet in the long term that 
kind of similar to the Solana bet, hardware is going to improve and therefore Monad throughput will improve as hardware, you know, improvements accelerate? Or do you see a world where maybe rollups do live on Monad? Or is that just like rollups aren't it, it right now? I mean, if, if the L1 can handle all the transactions, why would you have an L2? That doesn't really make sense to me. Like you're just introducing pain for no gain, right? So um, we'd have to see maybe somebody else has something that I don't understand that the use case for an L2. I, I think, you know, one thing that one one case that actually is mentioned is um, on an L2, you can you can introduce, let's say, primitives in the computation that are not on the L1 already so that that is an actual that's an actual like real reason to do an l2 um it has nothing to do with performance right so um those sorts of cases i would have to look at on a case-by-case basis and says like okay that does that really make sense does it not make sense you know monet also wants to do some innovations and some extensions on chain um that really opens up and allows you to build new new sorts of applications and that's that sort of thing but for us for v0 it's just pure performance it doesn't mean that performance is monads only you know targeted innovation um it's just kind of like if you don't have the performance you can't really everything else is kind of a non-starter right like if you can't support a large number of users of the chain then why why innovate in other areas it doesn't even make sense so um, you know, we have to have, we have to start with a good fundamental base of a high performance system, and then we can come and we can innovate and we can add new features and new ways to write, write software for on-chain and all that sort of stuff that really allows like app teams to build, you know, great apps that people want to use. But, um, that, that's going to come in later versions. So, um, I would have to see those sort of like L2 use cases. Like if somebody says, oh, I really want an L2 on Monad. Well, I would like to have a conversation with him and understand like what what's missing from Monad that you need an L2. Um, and, and we would, you know, that would, that would be an interesting thing to, to talk about. And maybe that, maybe what's missing is that something that can be added to Monad directly and, and they don't need to go through the L2 route. Because as I said, it's not, it's not a good experience for composability and, and those other sort of things. Yeah, maybe like something around like privacy or KYC comes to mind, but we haven't really seen that on Ethereum yet either. So uh, I liked your point as well as about like additional computation. That'd be pretty cool. Um, but I want to I think you mentioned this earlier that you're still, you know, this is still kind of in the development phase more so. Uh, but I want to talk a bit about transaction fees. So with a lot of the high throughput chains, you're getting super low fees. And that's kind of like one of the, the features is you can um, run different types of transactions that wouldn't make any sense on Ethereum. So different types of trading techniques, for example. Is that what we can expect from an ad as well? Yeah, so I think um, the, the more expensive part of the transaction is really like getting the data around. Um, so again, we don't have the fees worked out, but I think the fees are going to be more about how big is the transaction? How, you know, how much does it state? Does it touch that sort of thing? Like um, less so than the, I'm not, I'm not sure that the gas fees that are currently modeled on Ethereum are really reflecting the, 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 the total picture of the costs of execution. So, um, we, we have to evaluate that, but I, you know, the thing that, the thing is just getting data around, right? Like sending it from here to Singapore and to London and all over the place and, and the, uh, the bandwidth costs, the network costs, that's, that's a big chunk of it. Um, so I, I think, you know, preliminarily, like, I think the gas fee should reflect that more than, um, you know, I, I did an expensive computation like that. That's probably not, not a big of a 
deal uh, cost-wise to the blockchain. We want to incentivize like good computation, right? Like we, you know, um, a p point I make often is like blockchain apps are very simple. You know, think of how much code, um, you know, we're using this website now to, to stream this, right? Think of how much code is in that website versus like the fanciest on-chain program. You know, the orders of magnitude of difference in, in, the, in the number of codes. So um, I think also part of adoption is people building real apps that, that people want to use. And, and to do that, you have to be able to support a significant amount of computation and a significant sort of features. And that's, I think that stuff will come later, but um, you know, this is not, it's not meant to be like, you know, programs, running programs that people can write in third grade sort of thing. Um, you know, these, they're supposed to be really building like good stuff here. So um, we really want to, you know, make sure that Monad is in place to, to execute those, um, execute that software and, 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 and build apps that people really want to use. So I want I want to I want to hammer down there because we've seen a large number of high throughput chains come to life in the in of of late right so we, obviously Solana, uh, Aptos, Sui say there's starting to be this like a lot of people are starting to think in that same vein so like what are some of these applications that could exist in 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 like I'm, I guess right now my my issue is all we're seeing is like things that were built on Ethereum forked over to these new locations and it's like okay well great now it's like a slightly better version of something that already existed. So how do we incentivize? How's Monad going to really incentivize organic adoption of like these new ideas of the, like hey we have this new technology where new things can actually be built. So so let's build those things. If I had a great idea for an app, I'd probably build it. Um, but uh, that's not my specialty. Right? I'm a I'm a I'm a low latency uh, high frequency trader here. So. Um, you know, I think our expertise is in trading. Obviously, that's our background. Um, you know, Keone and I uh, ran an HFT uh, trading team for a long time at Jump. Um, so, you know, I think we understand that part well. And so, um, you know, we will, um, we can basically help push the frontier of on-chain, that sort of, um, that area, that discipline. But in terms of like wet, uh, consumer apps or social apps or that sort of stuff, um, you know, I, I personally don't, that's not my expertise. I personally don't know that, but yeah, we have to, we have to work with app teams. And I think, um, I think, you know, from my experience that, um, there's not a lot of collaboration with, uh, with the core chains, um, with, sorry, the, with the chains in the app team. So I think from, from a different perspective, I would like Monad to be, you know, collaborating with app teams and helping them design and implement their software in a way that's that's high performance and um, really under, if I can help understand their problems and then I can help them resolve those problems and that's going to make them more successful. So um, I, I, I do heavily see this as like a collaboration. Um, uh, you know, an example is like the Microsoft Office team has access to the Microsoft Windows team at Microsoft, right? And that allows them to do a lot of things. And, and there's been a lot of changes to Windows that allows Office, you know, to advance. And so um, that's kind of an old example. I wish I could think of a, 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 more, a more recent example, but, you know, this having access to the, to the people that are building the technology underneath you is, I think, a very valuable thing. And um, we would like to collaborate with app teams and really like help enable them to, to build real applications that are, you know, they're gonna have, um, that are going to be desired by users.
I absolutely love that approach. It's pretty funny, actually, because I, I feel like I talk to so many infra people and it's funny how much they don't really know about what's going on at the DAP layer. So to hear that you're hoping to, you know, foster some collaboration between the two teams, I think is actually a, a really solid recipe for success. Mm -hmm. But I do want to jump over a little bit to, uh, I guess, uh, uh, Monad BD and actually BD this time. Um, in terms of like bridge integrations, how are people going to get over there once it's live, if you even know yet? Um, what dApps have you talked to from the Ethereum world that are interested in porting over? Um, and honestly, what's the general timeline on what you guys are doing? Um, yeah, so for bridging, um, you know, there's, a, there's an obviously a number of different options, a um, number of different projects out there. Um, you know, we're talking to them. I'm not so much on the BD side of things. My head is in C++ code all day. Um, so yeah, I can't, you know, I can't provide the latest and greatest, uh, updates on where we're at with BD. Um, technical wise though, I think a bridge, we have to have some sort of canonical bridge that's, um, that's doing, uh, you know, that's integrated with Ethereum. Um, I would like to do something that's very secure. Um, but then, you know, the other, other bridges, other projects will come in and, and have their, you know, bridged assets and all that, that sort of thing. Um. But we need some sort of like basic level, uh, very secure uh, bridge at the at the base level. Um, but yes, yeah, so we we're obviously talking to all those teams. I'm not in most of those meetings because, like I said, I'm I'm always coding and, and running simulations and, and and that sort of thing. So I'm not a good person to to answer about those. But yeah, we we have signed most of our our partnerships that you've seen. Um, you can just you know we announce them on Twitter or whatever, and, and they're announced. And then there's obviously tons of conversations going on. Um, behind the scenes. The BD team is very active, always meeting with people um, all day, every day. It's just constant meetings. So, um, so yeah, there's, there's going to be some, there's going to be a lot of good projects on mine. And I'm pretty confident of that. Um, but yeah, I, I can't share any specifics right now. Taking you back into the code then, uh, what are the biggest challenges that you face and what are like the, the last hurdles that you're like, all right, if we can solve this, this is going to be the best blockchain that exists. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's easy to write something. Um, it's easy to write software, right? Like, uh, you know, and, um, you know, you can write an application for the desktop or you can write a web page. And if it goes down, it's fine. Like, no one, no one's, you know, maybe somebody's upset. They lose their work or something, you know, or, you know, Expedia goes down. You can't book a flight for the next five minutes, you know, something happens. They bring it back up and like, okay, now I can book my flight. Like, these sorts of things. With blockchain, that's not really an option, right? Like. Um, so there's, there's reliability in terms of it, it can't go down. So, you know, that's a, that's a big piece of engineering to just make sure it shouldn't go down. And then there's, um, hacking obviously. So, you know, did, are we messing up somewhere? Can, is some, somebody going to read the Monad implementation and say, oh, if I send these certain instructions in this transaction, I can destroy the system or I can transfer money to myself or that sort of thing. So, um, it's definitely, you don't have the same level of, um, you know, luxuries that you have with normal applications where like, okay, it goes down, I'll just restart it, that sort of thing. With the blockchain, it's, it's, it's very, you have to be very deliberate about everything you do, very careful, super rigorous. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what keeps me up at night. Like the performance problems, they don't keep me up at night because, um, you know, I, I'm confident we can always solve those sorts of issues. Um, but, you know, somebody hacking or somebody being able to do a, denial of service attack or something like that on Monad is what is what really keeps me up.
Well, I think that's a good spot to close it up unless Dan, you had any other questions jump in, but uh, James, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. It's awesome to hear someone who's like really on the technical side of things and can teach me things. So I learned a lot. Um, do you mind sharing people, uh, I guess, where they can find you to learn more about Monad? Oh yeah. Our website is monad.xyz. So M-O-N-A-D.xyz. Awesome. Thanks a ton, James. It's been a pleasure, man. Cheers. Cheers.